Well, good morning. As always, every week, every Sunday, it's so good to see you. And I want to welcome you uh, once again to our service. Uh, I don't know um, if you have ever seen any of these uh, birth announcements that seem to be increasingly popping up on social media where, where people put all of this time and all of this energy and all of this creativity into telling people that a child is coming. And some of them are really funny, so I thought that it would be a good day to share uh, those uh, with you. So here's the first one. Uh, this one says, only child expiring <laughs> April 2020. So uh, child number one, it looks like hasn't quite got on board yet with the program. It's pretty sad. Sometimes it's worse than that. Sometimes your first kid is really resistant, so you may need to take more extreme measures. This one says, eviction notice, and it's got a date, you know, it's got a date. This baby has to leave the only bed they've ever known their whole life. That's horrible. I mean, who would do that? Who would laugh at something like that? Uh, here's a hopeful couple. They have no idea what they are in for. Bump ahead. You don't have a clue, right? Uh, this next one works like if you want to like one up the Brady Bunch, you know, um, and uh, I don't have any more to say about that one. <laughs> this next one is in two parts. And the first one says, of course, we're pregnant. And you can see mom there in the background. She is not doing quite so well. But the tables get turned in the second part because they have twins. <laughs> and every mom who has ever uttered the words, you did this to me, is thinking, now that's funny. That's, that's really funny. Well, you know, when you, when you think about it, um, this passage that we started studying last week in Isaiah 9 that we're going to continue through the rest of this month uh, to study, uh, it's a birth announcement. And it's the best birth announcement ever, right? Verse 6 says, for to us, a child is born. To us... A son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And as we saw last week, Isaiah is prophesying in this verse that a king is coming who will rule over God's people. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, Isaiah gives him what we, we, we showed you was this fourfold throne name. And a throne name, you heard me say last week, is a, a name that showed what a king and what a king's rule was going to be like. And so each week during Advent, we are taking uh, a, a Sunday to look at each one of these different parts of the throne name. And today we're going to be unpacking that stunning phrase, mighty God, mighty God. Isaiah is telling us, I mean, just stop for a moment those words, they just kind of float across our brains. He is telling us that this promised king will be mighty God in the flesh. And he tells us this 700 years or so before the first arrival of Jesus. I mean, just think about that just for a moment, that this would be like somebody prophesying in the year 1323, something that actually happened this year. And it just reminds us that Jesus is unique 
that he is unlike anyone who has or whoever will walk this planet, that no mere baby was born that first Christmas in Bethlehem. You see, this title in the New Testament uh, is going to make very clear to us that a baby would possess both a divine and a human nature in one person. Now, why does that matter? Well, let's just think about it as we get into this. If he's only a man, then he's nothing more than a good teacher or a moral example. But if he's only God, then how can we relate to him? If he's only God, we'll, we'll probably see his humanity like, like a costume he puts on or, or, or maybe like he's some kind of an ancient superhero. But if he is the God-man, then that changes your life. And I hope as we are getting into this that you will see that it is of supreme importance that we get the real Jesus right, that we understand how vital, how important it is. Only the real Jesus changes lives. Only the real Jesus can reconcile us to God and make us his deeply loved children. Only the real Jesus can deal with the guilt of our sin and, and give us peace. Only the real Jesus can set you free from the fear of death. Only the real Jesus. And Jesus, he was not just a mere man, a prophet, a teacher, a moral example. I mean, he was all of those things, but he was so much more. He was mighty God. You know, there may be someone here this morning, I don't know, and maybe you're not actually a follower of Christ. Maybe you've come today because someone invited you, and we're so glad you're here. But if you are here and you're not a follower of Christ, I want to encourage you to make sure that you are not rejecting a Jesus who is not the real Jesus. He was not a, a political revolutionary or social justice warrior. He was not a philosopher. He, he was not a mellow hippie who just wanted everyone to chill out, you know. The real Jesus is the mighty God. And so is that the Jesus that you're rejecting? This title also for us who are Christ followers calls us to not let our hearts grow too comfortable or too familiar with these truths because there are unsearchable riches right here. It's so easy for us to lose sight of their priceless value. Maybe, maybe like a diamond distributor who handles precious diamonds every day. The real Jesus, friends, listen, is meant to thrill our souls. The real Jesus is meant to give hope to our hearts. He is meant to give awe to our minds, power to our wills, joy across all of our lives. The real Jesus. My goal today is very simple. And that is that we would all kneel before our invincible King Jesus, who is our mighty God, that we would each be awed by his beauty and glory. And then we're going to talk about a few applications right at the end. And so I want to read both of our verses, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, and then we're going to pray and ask God to guide us as we study his holy word together. The word of God says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty 
will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord and God's people all say, amen. Amen. Would you bow as we pray together? Lord Jesus, we thank you for being our mighty God, our invincible King, our Lord and Savior. And we ask you to lead us today by your spirit. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would guide our thinking and our understanding as you you lead us into the deep things of your word which you have inspired. Lord, do, do not let our familiarity with these truths anesthetize us to your glory and power. Lord, we ask that you would just give us fresh glimpses of your might today, that you would grow our trust and deepen our hope and increase our joy. Lord, as we walk with Isaiah this Advent season, would you use these so familiar words to to save sinners and sanctify your people? Lord, help us not to be half trusting, half believing, half obeying, but all in on you as our all in all. And it is in Jesus' beautiful and almighty name that we pray and all God's people again say, Amen. So there are four truths I want you uh, to learn from this title today. And I'm just going to let you know ahead of time, we're going to be going deep and some very important stuff today. So buckle up, pull up your big boy theology pants, whatever you want to say about it and, and get ready. Here's the first thing. Go ahead and write this down. You can put it in the app if you've got that open. The promised king will be fully God. That's the first thing I want you to see. Isaiah is telling us about this promised king. Two words, mighty God. And this word mighty, this Hebrew word for mighty means heroic or or valiant. So this is telling us that this king will be God. And there's an emphasis on God's heroism or God's valor. And you need to understand how startling this title really is. Because the Old Testament consistently uses this word to describe Yahweh. Just one chapter later, you can turn the page and look at it, Isaiah 10, 21, Isaiah is going to write, to the mighty God, and he's talking about Yahweh. Jeremiah 32, 18 says, oh, great and mighty God. Now, Deuteronomy 10, 17 says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty God. But, but it's clear right here in Isaiah 9, 6 that Isaiah is not merely talking about the coming of God alone because he is saying, remember, for to us, a child is born. And so the fact that, that he uses this, this title, mighty God, to describe this coming king, it had to raise eyebrows, and it still does. I mean, how, how could the coming king, this baby who was born, be mighty God? Was this like prophetic exaggeration? Was it some kind of poetic hyperbole? No, Isaiah meant what he said. So I want us to take a few moments to consider what it means for God to be mighty because this applies to this baby born. Theologians would tell us that this this idea of mighty means at least four things, that God is free, that God is all powerful, that God is sovereign, and that God is good. So let's look at each of those in turn first. God, the mighty God, is utterly free. You know, if you think about it, everything in the created order is dependent on something or someone except God. He is not bound to anyone or to anything. 
Genesis 1.1, the Bible opens and says, in the beginning, what? God. He just is. Only God. If, if somehow in our finiteness we could, we could look back into eternity past before the beginning when there was nothing, there was still an absolute someone. God. Someone who had never become Someone who had never developed, someone who had never grown. He simply was forever free, and all glory belongs to him. That, that is why when Moses asked God's name in Exodus 3, 14, in front of the burning bush, Yahweh responds, and he says, I am. I mean, that's kind of a strange way to talk about something, right? You know, I am. God was telling Moses, I am the absolute self-existent one. I am absolute self-existent reality. Later in Isaiah 44, 6, he's going to say, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no other. See, to be the mighty God means that he is absolutely free. Second, the mighty God is all-powerful. Another word you've heard before is omnipotent. This means that God has every resource at his disposal to accomplish his perfect will. And that is why he's often called the almighty because he has all might. He's the mighty God. He, he can do anything without effort. God never gets tired or worn out or exhausted. He never needs a nap. God is never intimidated because no one is stronger. God never breaks a sweat, not, not even in battle. He can defeat his greatest enemies with just the breath of his mouth. He just speaks the word. And Isaiah just tells us this repeatedly. In Isaiah eleven four, he says, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. One of the most beautiful expressions of this you'll find in one of my favorite portions of the entire Bible, really, is Isaiah 40. And in verse 12, Isaiah records this question that God is asking. It's a rhetorical question. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And the answer is the mighty God. He has. You ever stop to think about what that's telling us? I mean, you can look this up on, you know, the Google anytime you want to, but I'll just save you the trouble. Uh, do you know how much water there is in all of the oceans of the earth? 328 million cubic miles of water. And yet Yahweh is so mighty, he can hold it all in just the hollow of his hand. There's another rhetorical question in this verse. It says, who has marked off the heavens with a span? And, and he's really talking about what we would know as space. Now, a span is a measurement they use in the Bible that really was going from your pinky to your thumb or your thumb to your pinky, just across the, the width of your hand. And uh, Isaiah, in recording this, and God in asking this, is saying that space is so enormous and yet... Yahweh holds it all right there in his hand. I mean, just, just try to 
process and ponder these examples. If I were to hold up a piece of paper, just one thin sheet of paper, and that paper was to represent the distance between the earth to the sun. Some of you know how much that is. It's 93 million miles of water, if you don't know that. If you were to use that single sheet of paper to represent the distance from our planet to the sun, it would take a stack of that paper 25 miles high to reach from the earth to the nearest star. If you were to count the stars, there are so many of those stars. If you were to try to count them in just our galaxy, which is the Milky Way, and if you could count at the rate of three per second, 24 hours a day, not ever getting tired, it would take you a thousand years just to count the stars in the Milky Way. To count the stars in the universe, what we we know at that rate, it would take a hundred trillion years. Yahweh is so mighty, he can mark them all off with just a span of his hand. See, here's the thing. You keep dropping your phone. You you can't even hold on to that, right? (laughs) And everybody said, right? Yahweh He's mighty, means he's all powerful. Third thing is he is sovereign. That means he reigns supremely over all creation and over all history and over all our lives. That that means the future is not up for grabs with the mighty God. The mighty God, contrary to you, never needs Google, okay? Because he sees all things from beginning to end. He is guiding all history to his perfect end. There are no question marks for God. There are no unnecessary delays or long pauses where he's like trying to figure out what he is doing. You know, like watching a soccer game for 90 minutes, just wondering if anything is ever going to happen. For those of you who like soccer, sorry. (laughs) Not sorry. The mighty God is sovereign. Isaiah 46, 9 to 11, God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God. And there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have purpose and I will do it. That's what the mighty God says. He is sovereign. He is in perfect control of every situation everywhere. He never has to negotiate. His hands are never tied by partisan politics. He just leaves victory and joy and righteousness and justice in his wake. Everywhere he goes, the outcome he determines is guaranteed. Why? Because the mighty God is sovereign. And then, fourth, he is good. Maybe you didn't think about this one, but God's goodness is baked into this idea of might. Remember when I told you that mighty means heroic or or valiant? It's not just raw power. It's power put toward a good end. He is a God of valor. And that means in his power, he does all things in the right way, in the right timing, which means whenever he flexes his free sovereign power, it is for the ultimate good of his people always because he is good. His goodness refers to his kindness, his compassion, his patience, his benevolence, his love. He, he has goodness him, himself because he is the very source of goodness. Therefore, he is the highest good. That is why David would write in 
Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He is the very source of goodness. He is not a selfish, cruel dictator. He is not an indifferent monarch. He does not need constitutional checks and balances because everything he does is always good. There is nothing to not like about the mighty God. And if we ever think that we discover something, it's because we don't understand. Why? Because the mighty God is just good. He's goodness itself. He is the source of good. He is good and, and full of love. And so when you, you begin to think about who God is, he, God is not, you know, like our world tends to depict him as some kind of, you know, kind, but, you know, sort of confused grandfather. He's not like Morgan Freeman walking around in the clouds. The God of glory bursts with wonder and beauty and life. Now, if you're someone who looks around and you think about the world, you may be someone who, whenever we talk about the attributes of, of God, you just have a question that arises in your heart. And that question might go something like this. You know, when I look at the world and when I look at my life, why does it look like God, not look like God is mighty so many times? And in short, the answer is, well, it does depend on how you look at it because Hebrews 1.3 says, God upholds the universe by the word of his power. And the very fact God's word says, the very fact that anything exists at all, just look around you, whatever you see, that it exists moment to moment means that every millisecond is a mini testimony to God's mind. It's like now, 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 now. He is upholding it all by the word of his power. And yet at the same time, we know, and God's word talks about this, that all is not well. The Bible tells us that we live in a world under the siege of, of sin and, and, and that God in his infinite wisdom for some reasons that he has revealed in scripture and then for many reasons that he has not yet revealed, God permits sin and evil and death for a time for his greater purposes. And we may not see why now, but we will one day. And even through all that, we know as we look around, God continues to save sinners, right? God continues to answer prayers. God continues to transform lives. God continues to give life to the spiritually dead as he slowly and surely and steadily and inexorably and inevitably brings all things to his end by his might. And what I hope you are seeing as we do this brief overview is just the utter difference between us and the mighty God. It is not a difference of degree. It's a difference of kind. The mighty God is wholly other. That's why in Isaiah 6, when Yahweh appears, you remember that story and the angels cry out as they cover their faces. And they just say over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is 
full of his glory. See, he's too holy for angels to even look at him. That's who he is. And so we need to see him as he is. You know that all sin is, is ultimately rooted in thoughts of God that are unworthy of him. When we don't understand, it's on us. The only cure is to see God truly. And just as, as you and I can live our whole lives without realizing that the gravitational pull of the sun is keeping the earth in its orbit, so we can live our whole lives without realizing that our existence is due to the mighty God. See, our blindness to who God is and his glory is always the result of the condition of our sin, not something about who he is. And, and I'm saying this because when you put it all together, the fact that Isaiah includes mighty God as a title for this coming king who will arrive, don't forget, as a baby, that would have left God's people speechless. We are meant to be stunned by this throne name, this promised king, this child to be born, he will be mighty God. And just, just trying to wrap our minds around what it must mean for the coming king to be God makes what, what John tells us as he opens his gospel even more stunning because John opens his gospel by describing the arrival of the mighty God in the flesh. And that's the second thing that I want you to see. The promised king is here in Isaiah as well, will be fully human. Now, John unfolds this more fully, and we know that John is writing about what happened 700 years after Isaiah's prophecy in John 1. And again, I want you to just think about this. This passage is so familiar to us. We, we have to stop. We have to slow our minds down. We have to ponder and wonder and think and meditate about what is happening in these words. Because of all of the ways that John could have framed the arrival of Jesus. This is what he says, beginning in verse one of John one. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word. was God. He's God. But that's not all. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 3, through him all things were made without him. Nothing was made that has been made. See, we're still on mighty God, that part, fully God. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But then you go down to verse 14, and John says, the word became flesh. And he made his dwelling among us. We have seen with our eyes, his glory, 
the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It is hard to imagine a more dramatic opening. Without question, this passage ranks among the most stunning in the Bible. And again, I, I know you heard it as John opens this gospel. He is intentionally echoing the opening of the very beginning of the word of God in Genesis. In the beginning, God. And that word, lagos, translated English word, word, in verse 1 and verse 14, it made, it made the readers back then think of God's Word, his spoken word, which has this profoundly rich meaning in the Old Testament. God's word revealed truth. God's word created everything out of nothing. God's word instructed his people. God's word judged. God's word was absolutely authoritative. And so this means that the fact that he calls this word, the word, indicates that this is the word behind all of God's words. It's the preeminent word. And John says this word existed in the beginning, in eternity past. In other words, always. He never had a beginning. He's always existed. So what is this word? And John says, you know, in some sense, the word, this word was with God. That's verse one. But in another sense, this word was God. And this preeminent word that John is describing here is the living God, is the living God. He tells us that this word is the one through whom all things were made. So he's the very author of life. John describes his life as light. In verse five, this light that shines in the darkness. And again, if you were John's original readers, that would have taken you right back to that passage we studied last week in Isaiah nine, verse two. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. And again, darkness is this metaphor for spiritual blindness and sin and evil and lostness and death. But this word shines in such a way that it overpowers the darkness. So who is this? Well, this word, verse 14 says, became flesh which means he took on humanity and he dwelled among us. And, and when you read that, your, your mind really ought to go, what? Uh, how? If you're really grappling with it, it has to stun you. And again, I, our familiarity with all of this can cause it to lose its power do not let that happen. The preeminent word who was with God, who is God, by whom all things were made, who gives all things life, whose light overcomes the darkness, that word becomes human. And it doesn't mean he ceased being God. It means that as God, he took on our humanity. And John says he dwelled among us. This word dwelled literally is tabernacled. It's the same word used for the tabernacle, or it could be translated, he pitched his tent among us. And it refers uh, back to God personally dwelling with his people in the Old Testament, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple. But now, John says he's coming in flesh as a human being. And John reveals that this word is Jesus. This is called the incarnation, and it is the most amazing event in all human history. 
In verse 14 at the end when he says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Seeing his glory means that with their eyes, they witnessed his power. They saw his beauty. They, they looked on his majesty. And John calls this word the only son from the father. Now, some people distort this and say, hey, that means he was created because he's a son. But that's not at all what it means. How could he have made all things? He is the eternal God. He's a son, not in the sense of being created or born, but in the sense of being of the same essence as the father, being uh, in the sense of relating to the father as a a son. That that Greek word that is translated by only son is is monogenes, and the idea of the word is is only one of a kind, absolutely unique, like no other. And, And if your head is spinning right now, that means you're paying attention. It is right as we wrestle with these realities to feel like we don't understand, that we don't have a category for this because he is one of a kind. There's nothing else like him. This baby born to Mary in Bethlehem on that first Christmas is the mighty God prophesied by Isaiah. And it is hard to grasp because there's no one like him which is why it is so crucial that we sit under God's word and we allow God's word to shape our minds and our understanding of who he is. Now, I want us to take these two stunning realities that the baby to be born is fully God and fully human and begin to see how enormous these words are. Here's the third thing I want you to know. Our salvation depends on the promised king's unique identity. You know, I told you you needed to buckle your seatbelts. Well, you really need to pull up your theological big boy pants for this one, okay? It's deep. I'm just telling you. Here we go. This promised king is God and man in the same person, a single individual with two distinct natures. And we all like Christmas, right? Well, if you really want to have Christmas, then you need to sit here with this and ponder. This is Christmas. Let's keep going. On the one hand, he is eternal, infinite, immense, almighty, of the same divine essence and nature of God the Father. On the other hand, he was finite. He, he had a beginning in time He had limitations. He died and he rose. He was of the same nature as us. And you put all this together, Jesus possesses all that belongs to God and all that makes someone truly human in one person. And in this union, each nature preserves its essential properties. There is no mixture or confusion of the two. He's not God sometimes and human other times. These two natures coexist in one person of Jesus as the invincible king who is truly human and yet our almighty God. And as I said, the incarnation is the central fact of human history, which is why, despite what some people want to do to it, our calendar still revolves around his arrival. It always will. This mystery has sustained 
And it will always sustain Jesus' church until Jesus comes back. And what I'm pressing in here is that as the God-man, he was perfectly suited to serve as our mediator in a way that no one else was, is, or ever will be. That salvation depends on Jesus being both fully God and fully human in one singular person. Think about it. If he was only a man, he would be at an infinite distance from God, just like us. But if he was only God, he would be at an infinite distance from us, just as God is. But as the mighty God man, he bridges this gap between infinite God and finite human beings. And as a human, therefore, he is able to stand in our place. As God, he he was able to bear the, the totality of our curse. See, if he was just a human being, he'd not been... If he had not been truly human, then he could not have lived and died as our substitute. But if he had not been truly God, then his suffering would not have borne the weight and satisfied the the weight of our judgment. As the God-man, though, he perfectly relates to us while perfectly relating to God. He's one person, the God-man. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the only unique, one-of-a-kind mediator. And the glory of Jesus shines brighter because he is all of these things at one time. This is God's greatest wonder. Do you see? See, no one could have expected this. No one could have imagined this. No one could have dreamed this up. Isaiah wrote what God inspired him to say. I don't think Isaiah even began to comprehend what he was writing. And and, and I want you to understand that this is what separates Jesus from every other religious leader, every other religious belief system. This is what makes Christianity Christianity. We don't have our faith apart from this. You see, all other belief systems, whether they're atheistic or theistic, they point to God or something like God, but Jesus alone claimed to be God. In fact, in John 12, 41, you should look it up sometime. John said it was Jesus that Isaiah saw on the throne in Isaiah 6. I mean, try, try to comprehend that. The disciple Thomas, when he saw the resurrected Jesus, said, you remember, my Lord and my God. In Romans 9, 5, Paul says that Jesus is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In Titus 2, 13, Paul says, we are awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus. The author of Hebrews Speaking of Jesus says of the son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Peter writes in his second letter to those who have faith by the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You get to the very end of the Bible, Revelation 22, Jesus himself, he says about himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And it goes on and on and on. Jesus is the mighty God, and God's people all say, He's God. 
He's the God-man. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. And you know, we, we are living in a time where I think we see it if we have eyes to hear. Every human heart longs to be caught up into greatness. And Jesus is that greatness. And I want you to think about this. Sometimes people wonder, why did he come as a baby? And I think that maybe this is the answer. It's, it's what the young people call a flex. <laughs> now, some of us are too old to like understand that. Some of us are old enough. We understand it, but we shouldn't say it in public. Like, <laughs> this makes us seem older. But I'm trying to connect with you here, okay? It's like he wanted to flex his power over all the unbelieving superpowers of the world. And so he doesn't come as almighty God. He doesn't come as a strutting dictator or a bullying general. He comes as a baby. Because that's all he needs to do. He didn't come as some teacher or prophet or some ancient superhero or revolutionary guru or all-around good guy. He came as mighty God, but he came as a baby. And he's not a God, but he is the God, co-eternal, co-equal of the same divine essence as the Father and the Spirit. And therefore, as God, he is free, he is all-powerful, he is sovereign, and he is good, he is unchanging, he is all-knowing everywhere at all times in all places, even right now here in this room with us. As the Almighty God, he is the fountain of goodness and holiness and infinite wisdom and unsearchable joy and perfect justice and overflowing love. He is absolute reality. And that's why Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And as God, there is always sufficient grace and all sufficient Jesus for the greatest, most stubborn of sinners. And I'm talking about you. And I'm talking about me. But at the same time, we must hold this together. He has a human nature, which is the same essence as ours. He was born of a woman. He got hungry and tired and thirsty. He wept and he sighed and he groaned. He took naps. <laughs> His humanity wasn't a costume. He was fully and truly human, body and soul. And his humanity, unlike his deity, had a beginning, had limits. He was confined to certain places just like us. And yet, while he possessed a truly human nature, he was sinless. And for our sake, he faced temptation and trials. He faced life in a fallen world so he could love us and restore us to him. For our sake, he humbled himself and he lived a perfect life as a human being to earn our righteousness for our sake, he was mistreated as the vilest of sinners. He died the death of the cross in our place as a human. For our sake, he defeated death. And he rose again from the grave as a human to guarantee that one day we too will be resurrected. He became fully human. He took on a complete human nature 
so he could completely rescue and redeem those of human nature. And he was obedient in his humanity. He died in his humanity and he was raised from the dead in his humanity. And we can forget sometimes that our salvation depends on Jesus' humanity just as much as it is on his deity. See, while, while, our deity, while his deity puts an infinite value and all that he said and achieved, and while that thrills our hearts, his humanity allows us to relate to him, and it draws us to him, and it warms our hearts. And yet his deity and humanity must not be separated, which is what makes his identity unparalleled and utterly unique. And this mysterious, wondrous constitution of Jesus is one of the fundamental glories of who he is. He is our mighty God in the flesh. And all God's people should say, wow. Here's the last thing. The promised king, his unique identity changes our lives today. And I just want to give you three things very quickly. First, Jesus as our almighty, our mighty God gives us unshakable hope. Jesus gives us hope we cannot find anywhere else in the universe. All things are possible for him. No matter what we face, we can trust him. Nothing is too hard for him. No prayer is too difficult for him to answer. No need is too great for him to meet. No temptation is too strong for him to help us out of. No trial is too painful that he cannot redeem it. No darkness is too dark for him. He always overcomes it. That is why Paul says in Ephesians 3.20 that he he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And this means that as Jesus' people, we have unshakable hope. Secondly, it changes our lives because Jesus as our mighty God gives us soul deep security that we are known by him Psalm 139, David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise, you discern my thoughts from afar. You are acquainted with all my ways. And that means, listen to me, some of you need to hear this right now. Please hear. That means we can never say to him, you don't understand. We can never say to him, you don't know what I've been through. If only you knew, he does. He knows. He knows the worst of you. He knows the best of you. He knows the tears you have cried, the dreams you have lost, the prayers you have prayed. You are never alone, ever. He knows everything about you, about your hopes and your dreams, about your victories and your failings, about your hurts that others have inflicted on you. And he is able to take all of that and work it together for your ultimate good, like we saw in Romans 8, 28. He is our mighty God. And knowing that he was also fully human, born a child, adds to this that he has lived everything we have ever lived yet without sin. And that changes our lives. Third, Jesus, as our mighty God, offers us inexhaustible grace and love. And again, if Jesus were only a man, his grace and love would have limits. Like, you know, I mean, even if he was the most gracious and loving of men, his grace and his love would run out at some point. He would get tired of people. He would say, enough. But his humanity 
was so united to his infinite and exhaustible fountain of life that is the mighty God that his grace and his love never ends. And that means there's always enough grace. There's always enough love in the all-sufficient Jesus always. He never runs out. He never withholds from those who come to him with open hearts, with hungry hands ever. There is always enough grace and enough love in him for a million worlds because his grace and love flow from a bottomless fountain. And so I just want to ask you, are you tired this Advent? Are you discouraged? Are you worn down? Maybe brokenhearted over some wasted months or even wasted years of life? Are you frustrated by sin? You need to turn to Jesus and never stop turning to Jesus. Do not let Satan implant that lie in your mind that if you sin against his grace and love one more time, that's it. All who go to him in humility and hunger, he gives more grace, he gives more love. So turn to him this Advent afresh, whoever you are. Isaiah is saying to us today, this is our king. This is our God. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And he is mighty God. He is Jesus Christ, the Lord. He is our savior. And so whatever happens to us in this world, knowing Jesus as our mighty God anchors our souls in this stormy life. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we also just studied in Romans 8. And that is why the psalmist says in Psalm 73, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Our God gives us unshakable hope, soul deep security, inexhaustible grace and love. And I just wanna ask you, will you receive it? today and will you keep on receiving it every day this is our God this is Jesus mighty God let's bow our hearts before him Lord God, we want to say with Mary, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. How quick we are, God, to think small thoughts of you. How easy it is to drift away from the real Jesus, Lord. So we ask you during this Advent season that you would rebuild our sense of you as our mighty God, our King of all kings, as the Lord of glory who came as a child, who was born as a baby, who was fully God, fully human, and who is currently upholding the universe by the word of his power, along with our very lives, who knows us deeply and personally. Lord, make us a people of unshakable hope soul deep security a people Lord who rest in your inexhaustible grace and love a people who know that we are safe in you we love you Lord 
And we thank you again for your son, Jesus. And we pray in his name and all God's people said,